HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. You're listening to Heritage Radio Network. HRN is food and beverage radio supported by you. Learn more at heritageradionetwork.org. This episode is brought to you by Roberta's, home of Heritage Radio Network for 10 years. Learn more about Roberta's at robertaspizza.com. So you don't shun the devil with your rock and roll load. Knows that country music's gonna save your soul. The Welcome back to the Speakeasy. I'm Damon Bolte. I'm Souther Teague. And I'm Greg Benson. Souther. Souther. Back, wow. <laughs> yeah. What yeah. is this? Sorry for my uh, sorry for my absenteeism. Um, things came up. I, I, I can't even remember why I missed uh, three weeks ago. But the past two weeks I've been in L.A. Uh, doing the Amore Margot residency at Death & Co. there in L.A., which was, man, a, a blast. Uh but we decided that two weeks is too long. Um, we did two two-week residencies, one at Defico Denver and one at Defico LA. And uh, I think we'd have more um, excitement and more buzz if we did a shorter term, you know, like generate some uh, yeah. sense of urgency. But uh, but really great to experiment and try and figure it out, you know. Um, we took over, you know, listen, there's a couple of Easter eggs that I don't think people know. You know, Maury Margot turned 12 this past month, March 21st, 2011. Nice. Happy birthday. opened. Thank you. Thank you. And we've been next door to Death & Co.'s original location in the East Village for all that time. So we've been neighbors for 12 years. And there's been certainly kind of a barmance going on between between us. You know, we, we we have like kind of a symbiotic relationship. We feed each other guests and we, you know, we're, we're you know, my partner, Ravi, is partners at Gin & Luck, which is owns Death & Company. So there's lots of connections there. When they opened Death & Co. Denver, they have a little sidebar in, in, inside, inside Death & Co. Um, that they actually call 6A. And that's like a little wave to me down at the corner of 6th and A. And then when they opened Death & Co. LA, where we just were, they have a little sidebar as well. And it's called Standing Room. And that's because, of course, Maury Margo doesn't have any stools, right? So we, we've had this relationship going on all this time. So it was, finally, it was great to finally like go and visit their shops, get inside of their houses, and, and do, um, do our thing for a new audience. You know, really fun to to take a all stirred, no juice, nothing shaken program to LA for sure. <laughs> like uh, really caught people off guard. Um, so uh, I, like I, I'm exhausted from it. Two weeks in LA. I mean, looks like you got a tan. Yeah. D- did I? <laughs> I don't think so. We were, we were inside and underground the whole time. <laughs> you guys can't see this, but he's wearing, he's wearing like a big hipster scarf right now. He's got like, 
you know, a really aggressive fade going on with his hair. It's just he's we've That's we've right. lost him. He's a West Coaster these days. He's carrying That's around right. his uh his screenplay uh and trying to pitch it. Um <laughs> no, <laughs> but no, you were you were in a bar the whole time. But you know, it's funny when you say two weeks is too long because it's kind of like whenever you're in a band, and pop-ups are basically like playing like a rock and roll show a lot of times. But when you're in a band, kind of yeah, you don't want to play too frequently because the more frequently you play, the less people come out to your shows because they're like, oh, I'll just see them next week because they play all the time. That's I think what that's kind of what happened at both Denver and LA. Yeah, people were like reaching out to us via you know text DM etc. Saying, oh, I'm gonna come, I'm gonna come, I'm gonna come, and then on the last day they would reach out and say. Uh, man, I wish I could have made it. I just, you know, things got in the way. But if we were there for just four days or even, you know, like I think like a pop-up is one night. That's just one night show, right? right? Um, then there's kind of a takeover. That's three, two sure. or three nights, right? And then what we called this was a residency, residency. two full yeah. weeks. Um, so, but yeah, we had a, a, definitely had, like I said, a certain contingency of folks who went way out of their way. We had people driving all the way up from San Diego. We had a couple people come down literally from San Francisco to see us, like, um, so that was amazing to see that kind of turnout, that kind of like loyalty to the brand and, and coming to see Amori Margo. Um, but we definitely, I definitely can count at least five people that I know who reached out to me and said, I'm coming, I'm coming, I'm coming. And then reached out to say, sorry, I never made it. <laughs> uh, I think it, you're right. It's that lack of sense of urgency. Um, not, uh, you know, getting, getting people motivated to come down because they, they don't have enough, because they wouldn't have another chance, you know, but again, we loved it. It was great. And, uh, I just think, uh, you know, we learned, you know, and, and the whole thing, both uh, both sessions, uh, Denver and L.A., were sponsored by, you know, um, a bunch of folks, really cool people. Uh, Altos Tequila, um, you know, Jägermeister was one of our marquee sponsors. Um, uh, Lillet, like uh, some great bitter, bitters brands like the uh, Bitter Queens from Greg Robles has been on the show. Um, a lot of people supporting us and making sure that this thing could happen. And we're definitely going to do more of them. You know, Mori Margo's an easy bar to travel around, um, but we're going to make them shorter i think yeah 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 that makes sense um <laughs> yeah and then and the reason i wasn't on the show i know you're david you're out here in california or out there in california and you get up in early in the morning to be on the show but we weren't getting home till three in the morning sure. and uh you know getting up to do the show at nine was uh i just got i couldn't do it man i tried the first week i, I set my alarm and i was like there's just not a chance <laughs> <laughs> yeah yeah it's a, it's it's an aggressive timeline for people in our line of work. I think that you don't. What a drag! What a drag it is getting old. <laughs> what a, what, all, a, what a drag say. it is just generally. I think being a night owl and having to like, you know, occasionally do things that happen during nine to five or like day walker hours. Like even even to this day, like you know, I haven't pulled a, a regular bar shift since uh, since the before times. But even today, like when people are like, hey, how do you feel about doing a meeting at 830 in the morning? I'm like, "Ooh, how about how about a soft noon? How about we we yeah. agree on like a soft 12 p.m. with the potential to push it to one if like I'm having a slow morning? Like that's <laughs> that's more kind of like my timeline these days. So, Damon, our our hats, our cowboy hats are off to you for doing this. every week. <laughs> yeah. yeah, it's a uh, it's a thing. But, you know, I don't I don't. I'm not behind the bar these days. Um, so, you know, I don't have those late nights. Well, I still sometimes have late nights, but um, not working. <laughs> I'm, I'm a nine to fiver these days, but uh, still in the biz, still, you know, have Grand Army and all that stuff, but uh, it's kind of more on the, the like education side and 
you know, just doing, there's a, like we've said on the show a lot lately, there's a billion ways to be in the industry without being behind the bar. And absolutely definitely well, kind of in that, in that phase of my life, I'll get back behind the bar at some point, but right now it's like, uh, I'm doing this and all the other stuff. So it's still, totally, it's fun in a different way. Yeah, it's kind of like... But waking up early still sucks. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it sort of it sort of reminds me of like, uh, I know I know he's persona non grata right now, but there is there is a, a good Louis C.K. bit where he talks about how being divorced made him a much better dad. He's like, because I get to do something that a lot of dads don't get to do, which is say goodbye to my kids for a week at a time. I kind of feel like it's like that a little bit, you know, like I, I think all of us enjoy, <laughs> I almost enjoy the times I get to be behind the bar more because it's like a special treat for me now it's like like oh hey like i get to like jump back up on the stage it's like i get to pull you know uh pull in a it's like being being in the audience at a jazz show and having i mean i don't i i don't have a musical bone in my body but i've seen this happen to friends of mine who are musicians where they'll like you know they'll be recognized by somebody who's playing and like come on up here for a set and it's like super cool and they have a lot of fun and they get to show off and then you get to go home and it's very very nice um, but yeah, like you said, there's a billion different ways to be in the industry. And speaking of which, and speaking of time zones, we have someone we made it very, very easy for, uh, to be in the show today. They, they could have slept until 4 PM and still made it all the way from London. Um, but they're also a nine to fiver working hard, finding inventive ways to be in the industry. We have Don Davies from the whiskey exchange. Don, thank you so, so much for coming to us all the way from jolly old England. Thank you so much. It's a real pleasure to to be here, and uh, yeah, looking forward to it. We're looking forward to it too. And I'm looking. I I was um, reading some of the stuff that you that you and uh, your another friend of a friend of the show, uh, Shaki Tom, introduced us because she's wonderful. And love that girl. Yeah, and, and we were we were oh so do we. But we were talking a little bit about uh, you know you and and your passions. And as much as you work for the the whiskey exchange, you've been really into rum lately. And I'm kind of very you know it seems like something that I was excited to talk about. You're clearly excited to talk about it. So what is that? What has that been like for you these days? Yeah, I mean, I, I genuinely have. I mean, I, I love all booze. I call myself a booze bitch or a wine wench <laughs> or whatever. Um, but you know, rum for some reason just captured my heart in a big way and. As you say, I love whiskey. I work for probably one of the biggest whiskey buyers in the world. But there was just something. I think a friend of mine always says, if you're drinking rum and you're not smiling, you're drinking the wrong rum. And for me, that just probably sums it up. I love the variety. I love the fact that I think you know, I can't make cocktails to save my life. This is why I drink in bars all the time. So when you say I work nine to five, it's more like nine till two in the morning. But half <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> it's a hard job, but someone's got to do it. Right. I'm probably working your hours, but just differently, more entertainingly, less less drama in the uh, evenings, I guess. But, you know, I think the thing I love about rum is you can go from, it's probably the only spirit in the world that really, you can go from an unaged product all the way to a beautifully aged product. Um, you could say tequila and you know, certain, you know, maybe moonshine and things, but actually really rum does it so much better, I think. Um, so yeah, I think that's why. And I, there's so many places now around the world that are doing it. It's just an awesome product. Yeah, that's I've always thought that about rum. It's that it's it's the most outlaw spirit, also because it can be made like mm -hmm. really anywhere in the world. You know, whereas other yeah. other spirits have certain appellations and and region regional control, but rum can be made. And that's what's also fascinating about it. It's it coming from a billion different terroirs. You know, it's it 
there's a really wide spectrum of rum. So I totally agree with you. A hundred percent. And I think actually the one thing people have a real misconception with rum is that there are no kind of, that it is quite rogue, but actually there are regions of the world that do have a lot of structure to them. Like there is AOC when it comes to, uh, sorry, Appalachian Controle, when it comes to, uh, say, Martinique, for example. You know, it's one of the strictest booze right. islands in the world, <laughs> you know, all the way to kind of Barbados, which is fighting for its GI right now, Jamaica that has its GI, even places like Venezuela, which you think, oh, that doesn't have any laws and regulations around rum. It does, you know, I think that's what I love about it. It's still quite an undiscovered drink in many respects i think a lot of people still see it as a big brand drink but there's so much awesome liquid out there and it's just it's a really exciting time to be in the category i'm so happy you brought up martinique too because that is that is currently occupying the top spot on my travel bucket list i want to go there so bad and not just because uh you know because i i look awesome in a bathing suit i also want to go there because (laughs) i love rum agricole it's one of my absolute favorite spirits out there and it's one of if you want it because we we bantered a little bit about like is terroir a valid term when you're talking about spirits Mm -hmm. uh, before the show and i think that if you're gonna if you're gonna take the the yes side of that debate you really don't have a better argument in your arsenal than rum agricole like it just so very much tastes of that place specifically a hundred percent. And I think, you know, I come from the background when you talk about terroir, I'm a master of wine. I started off as a Somme. So like for me, terroir is literally, you should be able to pick up that glass, taste where it's from down to the fricking vineyard. Um, you know, and I think spirits don't have that to that degree in most instances, I would say in 95% of the instances. But when you're coming to looking at say sugarcane juice-based rums, hundred percent like a, a rum agricole from Martinique, or let's say a mezcal, yeah, you're starting to really understand where that is coming from. And Jesse Estes gave me a couple of samples that they're trying out in Ocho not long ago, uh, where they're looking at different vine- vineyards, agave fields. <laughs> <laughs> vineyards. Force of habit. <laughs> and, it, you know, it was super interesting. And I was like, do you have the next vintage and he's like dawn it's like eight years plus so i can get the next i was like no, excited. <laughs> so i think spirits i always talk about and i'm going to use the words of the great man dave brum here um that spirits have a sense of place because i think for me spirits is much more than just the land it's about i'm not saying that wine isn't just is just about the land but i think spirits is so much more about the history the culture you know, the physical production side of it, the aging is so important. And especially in rum, you know, I could go on for the next 200 hours about aging in rum and aging full stop or wood or yeast, whatever. But (laughs) well, I think it is really, I think you're onto something there too, because, you know, to me, I've been to, I was lucky enough to go on a trip to, uh, to Guadalupe in Martinique. So I got to go to the Damozo distillery, which just looks like a, a big rusty series of pipes you would never think it was like you know, we're, we're used to like romanticizing you know like giant copper pot stills and scotch distilleries and um you know like beautiful tasting rooms in you go there and you're like wait where where the hell am i but you know because <laughs> the air is super thick uh with hu- the humidity and it's super grassy and funky and it's like oh my god 
this is it's what insane. it the, I mean, was what the liquid tastes like in the bottle but now i'm here and it is really a sense of place i, I if i can encourage you to one distillery in your lifetime in the world get your asses to hamden because oh, i yeah. tell you now i had tears like i poor pepe who was taking us around the distillery thought i was absolute matter i was just like this is the dirtiest distillery i've ever seen in my life <laughs> But my God, it's awesome. <laughs> uh, you know, and I do think there is something, you know, they are working with natural yeast, which I do think has a, a massive part of terroir. But I mean, like you just walked into it. It was like Willy Wonka. I was going into the, the, the Charlie of the Chocolate Factory. I was like just the most excited person in the entire universe. And I know we're off camera at the moment, but right now my hands are moving at like 100 miles per hour. <laughs> That's how excited I am. <laughs> Yeah, there are some efforts going on out there to like codify rums these days, right? I, I seem to recall we had when we had Bailey Pryor on the show from Real McCoy, he was talking about the guardians of rum trying to sort of uh, not uh, impose rules on on the different reasons of rum making, but to codify them in such similar to what happened with Scotch, you know, about uh, forty years ago. Like we have the Scotch reason, regions, but like to sort of set up the rules and regulations so that we could identify them, you know, have you heard any forward movement on that sort of thing going on? Yeah. I mean, like hundred percent, like there are people working very hard within each Island with each in each country to try and really build on the credentials within those countries. And I think it is hugely important because I, for me, the reason wine has done as well as it has and Scotch has done as well as it has is customers know that they're going to, when they drink, say a scotch whiskey let's just throw that out um that it's a minimum of three years even if it doesn't give you an age it's a minimum of three years it has minimum criteria that it has to abide by cognac you know like you know when you drink a vsop it's four years old minimum and and i think those rules are not only there to protect the industry and protect other people from using the name that's there i mean champagne is an amazing example of how it's fought to protect its own name, so its own sense of place. You know, it took on Chanel. When Chanel put, brought out a champagne perfume, they took it down. They were like, no, you can't do this. And, and oh, I wow. think there's that side of it um, where you're really, really protecting the heritage and the culture and the, and the product, but you're also protecting the consumer from people playing around. I mean, not going to slag America off here. But oh, it's okay. You can say. do it. And I lived there for a long time, so I feel like I'm justified in doing this. But, you know, there's a lot of misuse of, of, of words in the American marketplace. They used to be. But those AOC laws have protected that. Um, and, and then so someone, if they're buying champagne, wherever in the world they're buying it, if it's protected by that Appalachian and the laws of those countries combined, you know, it, it makes that product so much stronger within itself. So... I genuinely think that's a very long way of answering the question. Yes, there are people doing a lot. <laughs> <laughs> no, and I and I think that's I think that's good. I think it's good that there is, you know, because I mean, I obviously champagne is delicious, cognac is delicious, Armagnac is delicious, but you know, I think there's a there's a cachet that comes from having those brands so vigorously protected that that creates mm -hmm. a sense of elevation in the customer's mind 100%. you know and and 100%. uh with rum i feel like there is a, there's still a lot of 
um, the spring breakification of rum is is yeah. can be a tough thing to undo in people's minds sometimes. And I think by having, you know, tighter controls around like what you're allowed to call a certain style will definitely, I, I would hope, elevate that in the mind of the consumer. Yeah, 100%. I think the more credence you can give to a product, then the more the customer views it as something that's special and different. You know, I think, and also it's about us going out and educating. So when a customer walks into a bar and asks for a white rum or talks to a retail person about golden rum or dark rum, we should be turning around going, oh, are you looking for an aged rum? Are you looking or, you know, we should be we should be trying to slightly change the language ourselves so that the consumer realizes this is not just a product that, you know, you whack with a can of Coke. Fine. If you want to do that, do it. Go for it. But also, you know, it makes some of the most amazing cocktails, super versatile. And yet you can still drink it. And I think it, it's we have to start changing the dialogue as well. I think that's super important. I agree. Yeah. I mean, and that's also, always I mean, been I our love... position. That's always been our position, right? We're the front lines. We, we're the ones who face the consumers the most. We're the ones who have to, you know, deliver that education to them. Uh, you know, and I think that the eventual codification of the category as, at, at large will, will make people more interested in it. I think that rum is, um, from the average consumer's point of view, I think that rum is a little bit of a scary category because it, it is so broad and there's so many varieties and so many places that it comes from that it, like, it's a little bit overwhelming. Oh, you're you're 100% right. And, you know, we tried to break that down by doing flavor camps of rum. So we have six different flavor camps. We've done it for whiskey. We've done it for agave recently, just to allow customers to shop by flavor, because that's how people shop. They shop mm. because they love a brand or they, they feel engaged by something, but they also have flavor profiles that they like. So I think it's making that a lot easier to understand. And, you know, like, I think the problem with rum is classification is still an issue. How do you classify rum? And how do you talk about it? I think Luca Gargano and Richard Seal did a great job with how they've classified, but they've classified from a very geeky perspective. We took that classification, tried to simplify it a bit, but it's still quite geeky because we're talking a lot about production methods. But I think at the end of the day, the more we can kind of just go out there and talk about the different styles and the different types and, and flavor profiles and distilleries that, you know, if I think about countries, you know, if I talk about Barbados, I always talk about this beautiful fruit and this lovely spice. If I think about Jamaica, whether they use muck and dunder or not, you always have this sort of ripe banana running through it. And, you know, that's got to have to do for me partly with to do with cane vinegar and stuff like that. And and the processes they do in the terroir that they have. You, you talked about Martinique earlier, that lovely linseed oil kind of flavors that come through. I think Claran, I mean, I could talk about Claran if I was dead. Leave me there. <laughs> you know, that beautiful, glassy kind of funk. Yeah, it's, I think it's just, and, you know, now we're looking at things like Scotland producing some incredible rums. Taiwan Renaissance is one of my favorite distillers out there at the moment. I think they're just banging it out there in an amazing way. So, like, it's just, you're right, there's so much out there in terms of flavor profile so it's it's almost like wine in that way you know i think people are worried about wine because they're like unless i know it's a chianti and i know what chianti tastes like actually what does sangiovese from australia taste like well depends it's a fruitier sangiovese from like tuscany so i think it's it's definitely about like getting people to experiment more you know that's why we launched rum show last year um physically which was great it's just getting people to try i think the more people can taste and try and the more people get as you say we are the guardians 
can go out there and really talk to people and get people to understand, then the easier it becomes for the, the eventual consumer. And we're the gatekeepers. It, it's as simple as that. Right. Yeah, and right. I think that the, uh, sorry, Greg, I just wanted to jump in there because <laughs> we keep jumping over each other. We don't have our screens on. <laughs> I think one of the best ways to get consumers to understand rum in a better way than they have for forever. Um, if you, it, I, one of my favorite drinks in the world is a rum old fashioned. Okay. And mm, the, the yeah. great thing about any age spirit, like as a, as a buyer and bar owner, like anytime a rep would come in with an unaged spirit, just a clear spirit, I would always do the martini test. Right. Because it's the best way to have a classic cocktail and try the spirit and it's going to be spirit forward. So you can see, you still get like the essence, like the full blown essence of what that spirit is on the flip side of that, you know, making an old fashioned, you're not putting any ingredients in there that are necessarily going to, you know, the bitters are going to heighten all the other flavors uh, as well as sugar. But um, I think if more people tried rum old fashions, it would be, mm -hmm. Like for because a lot of general consumers like the way that they buy spirits is because they had it in a cocktail or they're going to make it in uh, make a cocktail when they get home with that bottle. So rum old fashions, people just say it. Make yourself a rum old fashioned, and it's a great great cocktail to use split bases. I'm I, I do like three different rums in my rum old fashioned, and it's freaking amazing. Try a rum old fashioned. <laughs> I love it. You know, it's funny you say that because we did at Whiskey Show last year, we did um, Battle of the Spirits and we made the guys do, I think it was three drinks. I think it was three different, I can't remember if it was old fashioned, it was something like an old fashioned, one with whiskey, one with rum and one with tequila. It was hysterical. The tequila and the rum walked all over the whiskey. <laughs> right. Wow. Nice. <laughs> I think that's that's refreshing to me to know that people are into tequila and rum old fashions. That's good. <laughs> I can't Order. remember if it was old fashioned, but it was, it was something. Or something, yeah, <laughs> something. Yeah, cool. Well, either way, this conversation is making me thirsty. Um, we need to take a quick break and hear from our sponsors, <laughs> but we're going to come right back and keep on talking with Don Davies from the Whiskey Exchange, but mostly about rum. All right, we'll be right back. Coming this spring, we're working on something big for opening soon. Opening a restaurant can sometimes take months or even years. So I have this one consulting client that's been three months away from opening for the past year. And I had a calendar reminder show up today and the reminder was that our goal was to open tomorrow. But this spring, you'll be able to hear it in just a few hours. On March 30th, he had passed away. And then on March 31st, he had come back to life. And then on April 2nd, he had passed away again. And I was like, okay. My regards to the family, I don't even know how to receive this information. So tune in as we follow one of Brooklyn's best and brightest young chefs and restaurateurs on their journey from start to open doors. Alex, you need to put more money in. We're out. We can't pay anybody. He is the brought worst. Oh my <laughs> God, that guy. It's the build. Subscribe to Opening Soon from Heritage Radio Network, wherever you listen to podcasts. This episode is brought to you by Roberta's, home of Heritage Radio Network for 10 years. Roberta's was founded in Bushwick in 2008 and has become one of the most iconic restaurants in the country. HRN made its home inside of Roberta's in 2009, and together they have become part of the DIY fabric of the neighborhood. 
Roberta's, the pizza restaurant, is open for lunch and dinner seven days a week and serves much more than just the famous wood-fired pizzas. Their team dreams up new salads, pastas, and sandwiches on the regular. Roberta's Tiki Bar is alive and well in the back garden, serving up frozen drinks in the summer and hot toddies in the winter. Stop by the bakery and takeout spot next door for fresh breads, sticky buns, and pizzas to go. But Roberta's also extends beyond Bushwick, with multiple locations in New York City and now in Los Angeles. You can also find their frozen pies in grocery stores around the country. The spirit of Roberta's, like Heritage Radio Network, is everywhere. Here's to many more years of pizza-powered radio. Learn more about Roberta's at robertaspizza.com. And we are back. You were listening to the Speakeasy on Heritage Radio Network, where for the past half hour, we've been jumping over each other like dogs chasing a tennis ball because we had the chance to talk about rum with Don Davies of the Whiskey Exchange. And I think that got all of us very, very excited because that's the one thing that I think we can can absolutely get us just extremely pumped up to talk about. We're all big rum fans here, but we yeah. got so into that. Don, we didn't actually... Uh, get to what what it is that you do exactly. So let's back up slightly and talk about that. You work for the the whiskey exchange. What is that like, and what is sort of your your day job? Um, I ask that of myself every day. Uh, <laughs> so do we. Not hundred percent sure what I do. My official title, uh, if we want to be official about things, is buying director. Um, I really believe I'm general dog's body because I also manage the shop teams. I also manage the event teams and, uh, yeah, and do all the buying with my assistant, well, my head buyer for the Whiskey Exchange, which is over 100, uh, sorry, 10,000 products, uh, anything from vodka all the way through to champagne and wine and everything else in between, and, of course, whiskey. So, yeah, we have four different shows we run each year, whiskey show, cognac show, champagne show, and uh, cognac show. Did I say cognac show? Yes, yes. I'm sure I've missed something. The rum the show, show yes. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so yeah, it's it's quite a busy job, I guess. Uh, but I'm super lucky. I love it. It's an incredible, uh, you know, the UK is super lucky. Uh, you know, I think in America, you're slightly hampered by the three-tier system, which we are Lightly. so lucky in the UK not to have to deal with. Yeah, it's, yeah. Being it's a podcast, so you can't see all of us rolling our eyes right now. <laughs> but, you know, in the UK, I can buy what I want, where I want, from who I want. Uh, I buy from the, all the world over. And it's, it's really, really exciting. The UK has probably one of best access to spirits in the world um, and wine in the world. So, like, yeah, it's a, an awesome job. And I've, I've been in the business, I keep saying for like 20 years, but now it looks more like 25, which is slightly terrifying. Uh, started off, as I said, as a SOM um, and worked for some of the best restaurants in the UK and then joined Selfridges, which is kind of like a very posh store thing <laughs> in america i was like it's better than like neiman marcus it's like she the says. number one uh, re- uh uh department store right in the world yeah yeah uh so owned by actually canadian family um but yeah and then joined whiskey exchange eight years ago so been here a wee while which is slightly terrifying so that's my job in a very small nutshell <laughs> sounds awesome <laughs> Um, Chucky said that you had a funny story about, uh, suffrages and, uh, and champagne. 
I think she said something to ask you about a story about a story about selfridges and champagne. Oh my God. What could that be? I have many funny stories about selfridges, including one with a dildo. Um, <laughs> there we go. It's, it wasn't that one. <laughs> like we got a show. Um. <laughs> <laughs> um, I don't remember the champagne one. I got to message her and ask her what that one was. <laughs> I, there were so many crazy things that happened there. I loved selfridges. Selfridges was an incredible time. Um, we, sort of really built the department and made it sort of world-beating, world-class. But, yeah, it was, it was... Oh, was it the Ace of Spades one? No, it can't be that. She, oh my God, there's so she, many. Now she we're just rolling back. About it. <laughs> <laughs> I'll have to message me yeah. after this. Day. What was the campaign story? I don't remember it. <laughs> all good, all good. Um, well, that must have been an interesting, you know, because here in the States, like the department stores, like they are just now starting to get into uh well at least like wine uh but not really like spirits or anything but you're starting to see people bring in bitters and different things for like cocktail tools and um so it's i, I think it's probably gonna happen uh it'll turn into the you know they'll probably follow that that model uh and you know like i hope so because cool. i okay. Yeah, I think the great thing about having food and drink experiences in any retail space is that it brings the theater mm -hmm. to life. And I think the experiential is so important right now in, in our day to day sure. because, you know, over COVID, we were stuck on these damn screens. And, and I think we forgot that connection is so, so important. And we tried to bring it to life. You know, we did a virtual whiskey show. I practically killed Dave Brum and Billy um, doing <laughs> seven days of whiskey show talk. I mean, they almost killed me. Actually, it was 14. Whoops. Uh, <laughs> I almost killed myself. But, you know, I think there's nothing more important. Than, and that's why I, I literally live in bars half the time, because I, I think for me, like that food and drink element teaches you so much. One, about flavor. Two, about uh, the, the products. And, and you learn new things and you talk to new people. And it, it, the connections, it's... I always say it's not what you know, it's who you know a mm -hmm. lot of the time. And, and mm -hmm. that connection point is so, so vital in, in what we do. That's why we do it. <laughs> it's really the, it's I, we, we were all, uh, you know, we were all sitting at a bar stool or at a restaurant one day. And then we decided, hey, I want to do this too. <laughs> right. Yeah. And, you know, we all loved it. I, you know, I, I think there was nothing better in my life than working front of house. I loved it, except for the chef shouting at me many, many times. But right, <laughs> there's always that. No, what the hell? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but even that had its had its certain level of of excitement, you know. Um, you mentioned off air uh, that you've never been. I can't believe this, given the length and uh, you know breadth of your career, that you've never been to Tales of the Cocktail, kind of arguably one of the most visible cocktail conferences that happens every year down in New Orleans. But you are going this year. And you're going to be giving a, a talk, uh, a seminar. What's what's the topic of the seminar, and how uh, how excited are you? Have you been in New Orleans at all? I have. N I, I lived in the states for 15 years, and we never we went everywhere, but we never went to New Orleans. Right. I don't know why. Um, so one, I'm very excited to go to New Orleans, uh, just because I hear it's such an incredible city. Um, uh, also, my best friend lives in Houston, so I'm making an excuse to go see her as well. But you know, I think for me, like. <laughs> I'm so excited because it, it's just 
it sounds like one, it's an incredible space for learning and understanding and also too, just to have fun and really engage with people and meet people. And we're doing, a, myself and Hannah Lamphere are doing a panel about the perception of flavor and taste. And that I think is going to be pretty interesting. Um, we're both really excited to do it. Uh, so yeah, come on down and, and say, Hey, uh, we great to, great to see y'all. Absolutely. You got a hello. We, you'll be in good hands. It doesn't matter. Uh, it's, it's one of the best, well, it's the best industry in the world, but, uh, Tales of the Cocktail is really great because you'll just walk around and every block you're going to see at least five people, you know, and then they're going to be like, Hey, let's go get a frozen Irish coffee at Aaron Rose, or, you know, let's All go right. get lunch, or, you know, get some oysters or whatever it might be. Um, but I noticed on one article that you were in, uh, on barcheck.com, it says they ask you what your failsafe cocktail is, and you said it's the Negroni. And then they also ask you what is your hangover cure. I think you're gonna need both of these for <laughs> and you said Baraka and plenty of sparkling water seem to sort me out. Now that's great, but I will I'll tell you my failsafe hangover cure is a Negroni. Uh, <laughs> so it, like, it. it totally works every time. When we go camping, I always bottle, I pre-batch them. And that's what I, I, I'm on breakfast duty uh, with, with bottled Negronis. So I'm going to say. I love it. I also, I also highly recommend miso soup. I didn't oh, say yeah. that to bar chick. about miso soup, but miso soup is a lifesaver. Yeah, For me, it's kale and buffalo sauce. I don't understand. <laughs> also, also with every birthday I have, I feel like my hangover cure ritual gains what one more step and i think in in the next couple of years it's going to take me until 6 p.m at which point you can just start drinking again so it's fine <laughs> um i i wanted to ask you about something that you brought up you used a term that i hadn't heard before and i'm very curious about what it means you talked about mm -hmm. the parkerization of spirits so talk to us a little bit about what that is and what your feelings are yeah no problem so there it's more as so a parker uh, Robert Parker was a very, very famous wine critic back in the 80s, um, still to this day is, is very famous, but it was sort of the 80s, 90s, he really kind of made his mark. Uh, American guy um, started reviewing, um, and he used to give what we call 100 pointers. And these wines, in my view, were big, beasty wines that you have one glass of and you're exhausted. You don't want to drink them anymore. <laughs> Drinking Which, it is like exercise. Yeah. yeah, it was. I mean, they were just like, but they got a hundred points and then they sold for thousands of pounds. So everyone's like, yeah, big is better. Um, and it was, you know, it was the, the time when like these big American oaky Chardonnays were all the rage that, you know, like the big full body Cabernets and Shirazes were like, winning all these big parker points. And, and I feel that that's slightly happening in spirits at the moment. I think the geeks of the world are like, if it has more esters, we want it. Uh, you know, if it's a DOK from Hamden, bring it on. I mean, this is used in perfume by the milligram guys. Let, let's look at this from a serious perspective. Yeah. You know, peat levels, if it's not like the highest PPM, well, well we can't possibly drink it. And, and I actually, I don't think, I mean, I think things with big flavor can be balanced 100%, you know, I think. But but there is something to be said for something that's super subtle and beautiful and, like, doesn't have to overpower and overwhelm your senses. Because actually, sometimes you just want to sit and drink something and you may want to finish the bottle. 
and maybe go for a second. So yeah. I think there's this movement in spirits. And I, I shall, I'd love it. I throw the question back to you guys now that you understand my term polarization. <laughs> you know, do you feel that there's this sort of heading in the spirits world and in the drinks world as well, maybe cocktails for this kind of big, powerful flavor? As yeah, I'll, I can go first on that because I have some opinions, um, <laughs> uh, especially since I'm, uh, I'm, get, I'm getting married in two weekends and I'm picking out all the wine oh, and everything. Thank you. But, you know, for me, it's like, I don't, I'm going to have like, I, you know, I will have an Oaky Chardonnay there for like all the, you know, family members <laughs> from other places. But, <laughs> you know, I picked out a Vermentino. I, I love Vermentino because mm-hmm. it's light, crisp, easy drinking, and you can just crush it. And it's, it works well with a lot of different foods. Um, but as far as the spirit side goes and with cocktails too, I will just say, because we talked about it a little bit before, but mezcal, you know, mezcal in really that sense of, sense of place to me, it's like whenever, when, uh, Southern, you weren't on the show last week, but, um, Southern and I went down to Oaxaca right before, like right before the pandemic started. Um, it was like already, I think it was already moving, but, uh, was right before everything closed down anyway. You know, there's a lot of really beautiful, light, delicate mezcals that are more on the grassy side or the fruity mm-hmm. side. They're not all smoke bombs. And I won't like list off any brands, but like, you know, it's those, those are cool for cocktails and like smaller amounts, I would say. But do yourself a favor and, you know, for our listeners out there, just go out, go to your local bar that, uh, that specializes in agave spirits and just talk with the bartender and, Talk about flavor profile, you know, and and try some because it's a really beautiful spirit. On the cocktail side, I think that the low ABV thing has been uh, partially helping with the the flavor bomb kind of cocktails. I mm-hmm. love martinis, um, and fifty fifty martinis to me are they're sessionable. I'm still drinking a martini. I'm still getting you know getting the botanicals and the juniper. Um, but then also there's so many great vermouths out there these days in that have popped up over the last decade. And it's like, it helps. It's a 50, 50 showcase, not just a 50, 50 cocktail. So um, <laughs> it's not, it, you know, it's, they're like sharing the same bill, you know, at a show. They're not, you know, there's not an opener and a, a supporting act. It's they're, they're doing it together. So it's a really nice way to drink something, a cocktail that's on the lighter side. What do you guys think? Well, I mean, plus then I, I love a 50-50 martini. And one of my favorite things about it is that when you're done with it, you can have another and another yeah. and you then maybe even like another. <laughs> yeah. Um, and I definitely, I, I don't, I don't know. I came from the the beer world before I was into spirits. And I don't want to turn this into a pissing contest about who has the worst fans. However, <laughs> Pete, bad beer fans are in a category unto themselves like take the most obnoxious person who's ever come into your bar and like try to chat you up and play stump the bartender with whiskey and multiply it by about 10 when you're talking about just dumb beer fans who are who are (laughs) experienced chasers you know it's like they they are after it's the same thing it's like i want like the hoppy well it was the hoppiest thing for a while and then it was like no i want like the sourest thing you have which to (laughs) me first of all 
gross. Like I love a Berliner Weiss in small doses. I don't want to drink something that's basically just lactic acid in a glass. No, thank you. <laughs> but also that's such a betrayal of what the style is supposed to be. Like if you get like an authentically German made Gosa or Berliner Weiss or like a really, you know, there are some, mm. some Belgian sours that'll blow your hair back with how tart they are, but they're also like very complex and interesting and there's stuff in there uh, that, you can really just just dig into beyond the pH balance. Um, I do think that there is a little bit of a sort of uh, <laughs> conservative counter movement to that. A little bit of a sort of a the, a a like libertine movement of making things that aren't super intense. Uh, there's a brewery I love here in Brooklyn that I recommend all the time called Wild East because they have just the the monstrous stones required to brew a 3.2% dark mild and put it on the menu. And it's delicious. <laughs> you know, I think that there is, uh, and I, and maybe this is also the fact that, you know, the, the movement is maturing a little bit. The people who were, you know, in when I was <laughs> 21 drinking really super like triple IPAs that were 14% ABV that like, you know, I've, <laughs> I like to think I've matured a little bit as I've aged and I've discovered <laughs> that like, there's more, there's better stuff out there. There's more complexity to it. And I think maybe the people who were first introduced to this world, you know, 15, 20 years ago, and were those experienced chasers are getting a little bit, you know, mellower and I like to think that there is definitely an appreciation for, like we were talking about across the board in in beer and wine and spirits in uh, things that aren't going to just blow your hair back with how peaty or how hoppy or how sour they are. And you can actually kind of get into the complexities of them. And then once you're done, you can have another one. Yeah, right. For sure. Yeah. yeah. I mean, my experience, of course, is in the Amari and bitter world and yeah, that experience chaser is always in. He's always looking for the most bitter thing on the bar. What can you do with the Elisera Novasalis? And I'm like, not a lot, to be honest. It, it overtakes everything in the glass <laughs> in, in small doses, you know. Um, but I think that that's typical, you know, um, American behavior. We, we just want the you know, extreme, bring everything on, right? Um, but I'm glad to see that that people are turning the tide a little bit and going back to, to looking for nuance. And, and as Greg said a couple of times, they're looking to have a second, right? Let's 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 not blast our palates out so we can have another. Right. I, I think you're right there about like that sort of there is a counter movement for sure, and I think it, it's like anything. You know, wine went through that parkerization period and is now really pulling back and everything. So you know, it's going through that. I think spirits is just a little bit for once behind wine in that kind of journey. Um, and, and you're right, you know, there's some amazing mezcals that are just fresh and bright. And, you know, there's some insane, oh my God, I, like talking about vermouths and amaras and things. I had to do 50, 60 vermouths of de Torino tasting in Italy the other day. And literally by the end of it, I was like, no, please, oh, if cool. someone gives me any more sugar. But, you know, the ones, you know, I judge a lot of spirit competitions. And I always say to the people that I judge with, I'm always like, it may, you may be judging this incorrectly because your palate's tired and you're just picking the big bullshy kind of styles and maybe missing the subtlety. And, and I think like that's also something I always kind of have in my head is that sometimes you have to go back to it. I always say if, a, if you want to drink something amazing and you want to understand what quality is, if that glass 
asks you questions and you keep going back to it from a smell perspective or a taste perspective, that's an amazing spirit. It should ask you more questions. It should reveal something all the time. And I think we don't let spirits breathe enough in the glass and take time. I mean, I, th I think that's also something that we should get better at. Absolutely. Well, I think it also is just about, I don't know. And this is a very, again, a, a very, wow, we're really, we're really ripping on the United States today, but you know what? Sometimes we deserve it. So it's fine. <laughs> um, but I think that is a very American thing to like feel bad about feeling good. You know, like, I think that we, what I hate the term guilty pleasure. It's like, don't ever feel guilty about something that makes you happy. Like don't beat yourself up because there's a thing that you enjoy. It doesn't matter if it's like not cool or whatever. And I think that we, we have that about, you know, feeling good in, in all sorts of different ways, you know, with the media that we consume, with the experiences that we have, uh, Certainly with sex, but that's another podcast. Um, but I also... Wait, that's the dildo again? <laughs> I really just want to circle. I want to know the dildo story, Dawn. You can't tease us with something like that and then not tell it. Um, but I also think that that really applies to, to food and drink. You know, I think that we are shamed into thinking of the things that we put into our mouths as like fuel and nothing else. And I don't think that there really is a culture in, in the, uh, the United States, the way that there is in maybe places like France and Italy and, and other spots that make really, really awesome wines and spirits of just savoring it and like getting to enjoy and like letting that spirit kind of open up and sort of having the, the interplay between you and that thing and really just unashamedly, like taking a lot of pleasure in what's in your glass. A hundred percent. I always say in the UK, we're really great at drinking. We're not good at tasting. Um, <laughs> we got it from you, just... dad. We got it from watching you. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> I, I like that. That was a solid thought, Greg. Um, uh, <laughs> Thanks, man. Because, you know, sometimes when it's 9 a.m. here and I'm doing this radio show, I'm like, I do deserve a Fernet Bronca right now. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, I'm not gonna feel guilty about it. There was uh, I, I bring this up every once in a while, but Paul Picoult, I think it was Paul Picoult. Uh, I should research this article from like 20 years ago, but he, <laughs> he was he was writing an article about a seminar he was teaching, and it was about beer, and uh, he was talking about like a, a German Hefeweizen, and in the class, or it was like a a saison or a, a Hefeweizen or something like that. Um, something light and, and beautiful. And uh, he was like, yeah, this is just like, you know, and everyone was tasting. He's like, this is just like a great like breakfast beer. And everyone kind of snickered. And he was like, why? He's like, I wasn't making a joke. <laughs> you know, it's like, this would be a great breakfast beer. And it's just kind of like our culture just doesn't get that. Um, I'm not saying we should all be drinking Fernet at 9 a.m. But, uh, you know, we start at 8 a.m. when you really need it. Um, but you know, it's just, <laughs> but yeah, it's just, it, you know, but we also like ruined the world with like fast food. And, uh, <laughs> so like, you know, part of, part of my honeymoon is going to Florence, which is my favorite city in the world. And um, the culture yeah. there is just like, and then we're going to San Sebastian. So it's like, just like oh, pinchos and sherry. And it's like, just living the good life. And it's just I normal. It's so it's normalized. It's, it's what you do. And I think that's super true. You know, it, it, our cultures often dictate how we kind of perceive food and drink and things. And I, there is, you know, the amazing thing when you go to Italy, you never 
drink without food. Great. Like you just wouldn't, you know, there's this amazing wine show called Vinitaly in, in funnily enough in Italy. And uh, you go to every stand and like their mama's cooked like some beautiful like bruschetta thing or like they've done the saucisson or like the, you're like, oh my God, this is amazing. I leave eating more food than I've drunk of wine, which is probably sure. not the, <laughs> the plan for the show. <laughs> well, on the flip side it's of that, I, I, I don't have meals without having a drink, you know, and <laughs> I mean, well, I don't eat breakfast. Um, sometimes I do, but I, I guess I don't. Yeah, but uh but you know it's like i it feels weird to me and this is a very like european thing it's like it just it it's it's almost sacrilege to like it's to have a, a, this awesome food in front of you and then not have a pairing with it you know it just doesn't make sense to me and Maybe it's because I grew up in the country in Oklahoma in the Bible Belt, where it was extremely <laughs> shameful to just drink in general. Um, but just to me, I'm like, no, that's that's the thing I like the most in life is having great food with great friends, and you know, it's a great glass of wine or cocktail with that. You know, that's just part of it. You know, and it should be. Oh, yeah. I think, you know, this is why we do what we do, isn't it? So that yeah. we can go out and afford great food and great drink. And, you know, it, it's just that's us working. kind of life. <laughs> yeah. yeah, that's what, that's working. You know, yeah. I, I keep saying when and I stagger in at like three, four in the morning. I'm like, yeah, I was, I was working. I'm just like, yeah, right. This is the time of year. Uh, this is the time of year where I have to take my credit card statements to my tax guy and be like, no, no, trust me, trust me. This was all for work. <laughs> I promise exactly. it was legitimate research. Um, Don, I, I know we have to let you go in a second, but you mentioned another thing, another word that I want to follow up on. Um, Mitch miss what I mean, unless, unless you want to tell the dildo story right now, uh, what, what is Mitch so Mitchmas is a chalky, a, a chalky creation. Um, so one of our best friends is a guy called Mitch Wilson and uh, MW. So I'm DDMW because I'm a master of wine. And he's Mitch Wilson DD um, because we both have to share everything in life. And <laughs> that's one of the funniest thing, people in the world. And I adore him. He's the brand ambassador for Black Tot, um, which Impex, mm. I believe, brings in. Wow. Yes. Cool. And uh, he's... Just hysterical. So Chucky, because he just also gets himself into quite entertaining situations, Chucky's done a calendar at Christmas. So every year she does her amazing drawings. And so watch out for the 12 days of Mitchmas. Um, we might <laughs> be changing that this Chucky tells me. So we'll see. But um, always quite entertaining. Um, and yeah, I can I can tell you the dildo story if you really want. But maybe we'll save that for the time. <laughs> Bonus episode. Subscribe to our Patreon. Yeah. <laughs> Oh man! Well, um, I guess we'll save the dildo story till next time because uh, we would love to have you back on the show. Um, we could talk to you forever, well, or listen to you talk forever. I love you guys already. Um, <laughs> but yeah, um, as far as any kind of, uh, if anybody wants to get in touch with you, uh, you're on social media, correct? At um, yeah, as you just mentioned at uh, at Don Davies MW. I think I'm Dawn Davies MW. Yeah. I was like, what is my Instagram handle? <laughs> yeah please feel free to reach out i'm always sort of happy to have any questions come my way um you know like uh always excited to hear of new brands if anyone's got something exciting on the on the horizon um 
So yeah, just feel free to reach out or I'm easy to find at the Whiskey Exchange, which is where I live night and day. (laughs) (laughs) Well, awesome. It's been so great having you on the show today, Don, and uh, we'll definitely have to have you back sometime soon. Uh, maybe we can get you and Chucky on the show together, and 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 Mitch. That would be a disaster. And Mitch, hundred yeah. percent. Yeah. That would not go well for anyone. <laughs> <laughs> we'll have to do it. Do it in person at Tales of the Cocktail. I would definitely need alcohol. Yeah, for sure. Well, we always have that. Um, all right. Thanks everyone again for listening to the Speakeasy on Heritage Radio Network. Tune in next week where we always have great, interesting friends and just fun industry people on the show. And I want to say thanks to Armin for being there for us. Uh, He's producing and engineering the show today as he always does. And so just want to thank you again for that. Uh, Till next week, everyone. Cheers. Cheers, Cheers, everybody. Cheers. The Speakeasy is powered by Simplecast. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food and drink radio supported by you. Keep in touch at heritageradionetwork.org slash subscribe.